You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. start, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We are finishing out our series, the the Follow Jesus series. And just to kind of highlight where we've been, we started with answering the question, who is Jesus? And just kind of going back to the fundamentals of what does Scripture tell us about who Jesus is and how we come to Him and how He is the foundation of everything moving forward. And then we talked even further is that, that if we have a relationship with Jesus, then it, then it means that our lives are lived differently, has a different set of priorities. And so how do we do that? What does that look like in pursuing Christ? And, and, and then just last week, we talked about w- walking with Jesus in the hardships, how Jesus meets us within those hardships, so that he doesn't ignore them, that he has a purpose within them, that he comforts us in the midst of our trials. And then this morning, as we wrap all these things up, Uh, Today, we're going to focus on this amazing community Jesus created, the church. I I don't know if maybe many of you, you've just grown up in the church, and so being at church has just been been the normal thing uh, that you do. But but for some of us, we were really challenged with why do we even gather together? What is the point of this whole thing that we are doing? Is it just some religious exercise? Is it some weird community event that occurs? What is the point of this thing that we call church? And so today we're going to really focus on that, of of following Jesus together and specifically through the church. The foundation we started with is still there. All this, what we're doing right now, gathering together, worshiping together, being part of this little community together is made possible because of the life, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I was really excited of how just everything kind of lined up with being able to conclude this series by coming together, by going through communion together. Brian did a wonderful job in helping us think through, what does that mean? And we will have some time of just personal reflection before we come to the table together as we commune together, remembering Jesus Christ. Hopefully you got one of the sermon outlines. Again, I will do my best to to follow that. And hopefully it's helpful for those of you who especially enjoy taking notes and kind of see where we are headed. First, I wanted to share a, a quick story. In September 1938, the British Prime Minister, Sir Neville Chamberlain, he had returned from this a series of, of meetings and conferences in Germany. And his hopes were, in fact, the agreements that were made, were, were, he was hopeful that he had stopped Adolf Hitler based on the agreements that, and the conversations that they had had. Well, we, we know how history works, and we can look back, and just a year later, Hitler invades Poland, and on September 1929, just a year later, Great Britain declares war on Germany, and so Chamberlain's great peace mission had failed. Now, when we look at history, it tells us of all kinds of peace agreements that are often broken. In fact, I, I read somewhere that from 1500 B.C., 
to 850 AD, there were some 7,500 peace agreements made between a variety of nations and people groups who had hoped to bring in peace, but most of these agreements would only last a couple years before these eternal contracts for peace were broken. We live in a world today where conflict between people groups and nations seems practically normal in human history. We live in a world that is divided, whether it's because nations are at odds with one another or it be divisions among blacks and whites, Arab and Jews, male, female, rich or poor. Our world can feel consistently divided. In the first century, when when Ephesians is given to the church, the world was no less divided than it is now. And the basic distinction that we see all throughout Scripture is Jew and Gentile. And for that reason, some Jewish Christians were having trouble accepting Gentile converts, those that were outside of the Jewish family coming to Christ. In fact, some had even insisted that they must be Jews. They must become part of the Jewish people. But Paul shows the Ephesians how God answered the world's plea. It's desire for peace. It's desire for unity. It's desire for oneness. And that answer was Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to mainly focus on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, through the end of the chapter. But I want us to start this morning as we read through Scripture, right at verse 1 of chapter 2. And I would encourage you to follow along with me, and we'll mainly focus at verse 11. It says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the air that is ne- the, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I've always teased, I have a message specifically on this first set of verses, and I've always teased that if you're in the habit of only reading a few verses a day for your time with the Lord, and you came to these three verses and you ended right there, it would be quite a depressing day moving forward. Because all I've found out is that I'm a horrible, wicked person just like everybody else around me. Verse 4 is where everything changes. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ. Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And now for verses 11 through 22, which will be our focus this morning. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, 
and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice that we'll start with who we were, and that this section starts with, with Paul addressing this reality that those of us who are outside of the, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, and we, if you were here for our long story short, we kind of looked at this whole history of how God includes all of humanity eventually through this covenant, this new covenant that was going to be made through Jesus Christ. But, but Paul first addresses the reality that we're all facing. The opening word there is therefore, which connects verses 11 through 22 through to those first 10 verses. And, and the two paragraphs kind of parallel each other in many ways. Both begin by emphasizing the desperate uh, uh, spiritual condition of those without Christ. And then both present God's gracious intervention in Christ and the wonderful new identity that characterizes his new creation. And so it's, it's this new, uh, it's dramatic rescue from our hopeless and helpless condition that is the glorious news of the gospel. The gospel is awesome because when we realize I have nothing and yet God gives me everything through Jesus, how could we not be overwhelmed with that reality? It's similar to what Paul tells Timothy back in 2 Timothy where we started this whole series. What we're going to have an opportunity do, to do together in communion is Paul commands us to remember, to call to mind, to keep in mind that before Christ we were once separate from God's chosen people. But not only were we separate from God's people, we were separate from God and his promises Verse 12 continues on to tell us that, that we were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Again, if you were around when we were doing Long Story Short series, we, we talked about this separation of the Jews and the Gentiles and what it would look like with the tabernacle and the barriers that were placed where those who were outside of the Jewish community would not even be able to enter in the same way that the, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, were able to. And the reality of what barriers for outsiders would have been like and what they would have experienced. And so Paul does a very similar thing here. 
And so let's refresh our minds on these things. First, we were at that time separated from Christ. We'll go into a little bit of language here, all right? So just, just bear with me, but I think it's important for us to see. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, a term meaning anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were basically three offices that involved an anointing, an initial anointing. That would have been the prophet, it would have been a priest, and it would have been the king. And Jesus, the Messiah, is the final fulfillment of all three offices. Jesus is the ultimate prophet whose revelation allows people to know God. Jesus is the last high priest whose perfect sacrifice permits sinners to approach God. And Jesus is the final king whose sovereign reign brings people under God's righteous rule. Yet, as Paul states here, he was not our prophet, our priest, our king, because as Gentiles, we had no part in the Messiah. We were separate from Christ. Paul continues, and secondly, he says, we were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Gentiles were outside the nation of Israel, so we didn't benefit from God's word, God's temple, or God's traditions. We weren't part of God's community, and therefore we had no rights as citizens, as if we were members of God's community. The third thing he says is that we were strangers to the covenants of promise. If you remember when God starts making covenants with man, God had called Abram his, and he had promised to make him a mighty nation, that he would bless him and, and make a blessing. Then God made a covenant with Israel at, at Sinai and later he made another covenant with David. And then finally the Lord promised to establish a new covenant which would give his people a new heart. But none of what was contained in these covenants applied to us as Gentiles. Because we Gentiles were separate from Christ. We were excluded from Israel. We were strangers to God's covenant promises. We were hopeless and godless, having no hope and without God in the world. This is the tragic condition of every person apart from Christ. These are the sad circumstances of every unbeliever. They have no God to guide or to guard them, no Messiah to redeem or rule them, and no part in God's people or God's promises. They are hopeless like we were hopeless. Thankfully, Paul doesn't end his argument there, but he helps paint for us a desperate picture of where all of us stand without Christ. God in his great love and mercy did not leave us sinners where we deserve to be. Because look at, at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So what did, what did Christ do? Well, Christ brought us near to God verse 13 it says but now and so we have this great contrast that that Paul so often uses to paint a picture of absolute despair without Christ in contrast of the amazing freedom that is found in a life with Christ 
And it's this depressing description of verses 11 through 12 that no longer apply to Christians because in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So when we were as far from God as hell is from heaven, our Redeemer brought us near. He brought us into the presence of God. And verses 14 through 18 go on to explain how and why he did so through the cross, how he brought peace. First, Christ reconciled us with each other and with God. Verses 14 through 15, he talks about that the the essence here of these verses is stated in verse 14. He himself is our peace. Jesus himself is our peace. Isaiah 9, 6 calls the Messiah the Prince of Peace. The prophet Micah declared this one, Jesus, will be our peace. So it's Christ who brings peace between Jews and Gentiles. It is Christ who brings peace between sinners and God. Through his death on the cross, Jesus reconciles humanity with one another and with the creator. And it's in this beautiful irony that God uses the violence of the cross to establish peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And it's, this, this peace was no mere truce or treaty, but rather it was a brand new unity among humanity and with God. It was something new and different that had never happened before. The way that Jesus united Jews and Gentiles was by making both groups into one, but to do so, he had to break down the barrier of the dividing wall, as we see in verse 14. God himself had commanded Israel to remain separate from the nations. He had called them to be separate from the nations for a variety of reasons, but the main ones was to protect them from idolatry and immorality. They were to represent him to be a a light among all the other nations around them. And he had specific ways in which they would do that. And since it was God who established the barrier, God alone had to be the one to remove it. And this is exactly what Jesus did. He fulfilled the demands of the law through perfect obedience. He paid the penalty of the law through his death on the cross. And so he he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the separation, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, as we see here in Paul's argument. In other words, Jesus removed the barrier separating Jews and Gentiles by fulfilling the law once and for all. Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic covenant as the system governing God's people and replaced it with a new covenant in his blood. But why? Why did Jesus do this? What's the point of it? Verse 15 fills fills us in. So that in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Jesus died not only to reconcile people with God, but also to reconcile us to one another. Unity 
is a central goal of the gospel. And note that Christ does not make, make Gentiles become Jews or Jews become Gentiles. He reconciles us not by making us renounce an important part of our identity, but by giving us a new identity that's found and fundamentally in Christ. That new identity in Christ then takes priority over everything else. Often described as when we turn to Christ, our priority becomes Christ, and his priorities become our priorities, and everything that we do in life is seen through this gospel lens of, I want to make sure I'm honoring his kingdom before I think about anything of myself. The way that Christ unites us is by creating the church. Ephesians 2.10 states that Christians are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 2.15 helps us understand that the church is Christ's work, created by Christ for peace and for unity. So the aspects of our identity that distinguish us, whether it be race, socioeconomic status, and gender, they no longer need to divide us because we now share in this new identity in Christ. So the same God who assigns our race, our social standing, and gender gives us a new identity in Christ that unites us because it is the most important part about us. So the church is really God's peace plan with all of humanity. We are the community of Christ who is our peace, and therefore we must be at peace. But Christ doesn't stop there. What Christ accomplished also gives us access to God. Verse 16 conveys a second, conveys a second reason that Christ died for us. Jesus bled and died not only to unite Jews and Gentiles, but also to reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity, the separation, this barrier. We understand that our sin made us God's enemies. We talked often about this when we were looking at how Paul talks to Timothy. So we understand that our sin makes us enemies, but Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. So the holy wrath of God fell on Jesus, not us, so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Hallelujah. Christ reconciles us to God through his cross, restores our relationship with our creator. We've been through this already as we looked at 2 Timothy, but the foundation has to be there to understand that our unity is not found in our personal preferences aligning. It's found in the fact that we have a new identity found in Jesus Christ. And now the church, this new community created by Christ, proclaims this good news far and wide. He says, and he came, he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, Gentiles and Jews. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. While he was on earth, 
Jesus preached peace with God and with one another directly. And now that he's ascended into heaven, he preaches indirectly through his word, his disciples, so that those who have found peace in Christ, they preach peace to those who are far away from God, like the Gentiles. They preach the gospel, the peace of God, the hope of God, to those who seem near to God, like the Jews. And so then, through the church, the gospel that began in Jerusalem spread through Judea and Samaria and is now spreading to the outermost parts of the world. Christ, who is our peace, verse 14, who established peace, verse 15, now proclaims peace, verse 17, until men and women of every nation, tribe, and tongue sing in heavenly harmony as we see reflected in Revelation 4 and 5, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, and worthy is the Lamb that was slain. We will join together in singing that anthem because we all understand our unity and our peace has been found in Christ and our new identity in Christ and this new community that we live in, now the church, to help one another live out our faith, to celebrate what Christ has done and to show a dying world the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't stop there. Like, look, here, here's where you were. Here's how bad it was. But Christ stepped in to your history and he radically changed everything. And so now, we need to understand who we are and the last few verses, 19 through 22, help us understand that. So far, we've looked at who we were without Christ, verses 11 through 12, what Christ did for us, verses 13 through 18, and now we want to see who we are in Christ. And Paul uses three different images to present our shared identity in Christ, and, and together these things emphasize that Christians are God's new community, that everyone who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ also has a relationship with his church. This is both in a universal sense, connecting all believers into one family, and also a local sense, and that is the individual church community Christians belong to. So in Christ, we are fellow citizens in God's kingdom. Paul's first image of our common identity as Christians is political. Gentiles who were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel are now no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints. Immigration tends to be a hot topic at all times. Immigration is an issue facing many nations. Faced with questions like who should a country accept and embrace as citizens? What does the path of citizenship look like? What rights and relationships are involved in transferring one's citizenship? And here in Ephesians 2.19 is God's immigration policy. Every person who accepts Jesus Christ as Savior becomes a fellow citizen with the rest of the saints. That is, with those who are already citizens of God's kingdom. You get put in this new community. 
Every person who trusts in Christ becomes part of God's kingdom. Regardless of your nationality, when you accept Christ as your king, when you become a citizen of heaven with all the rights and privileges thereof, no longer an outsider looking at the barriers thinking there's no way I could get there, Christ stepped in, eliminated the barriers and said, run to me and you can become a citizen of my kingdom and have all the same rights, all the same privileges. But we also acquire the responsibilities of citizenship. We must be good subjects of our king. We should, as scripture tells us, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and praying that his name will be praised and his will be done. We also share in a common loyalty and allegiance with every other citizen in God's kingdom. We sing the same anthem. We pledge the same allegiance. We celebrate the same holidays. We face the same enemies and endure the same trials. If you've ever tra traveled ab abroad, then maybe you know the joy and relief, if you're, especially if you're in a, a country that does not share your language. When you come across somebody that shares your language or is actually from your country, when you recognize their language and immediately you're connected with them. Why? Because you're fellow citizens. You recognize them. And in the same way, we Christians should encounter one another with joy and relief, recognizing our common language and reaching out to one another. Fellow Christians are fellow citizens. And our King commands us that we treat each other as such. Paul continues, in Christ we are fellow members of God's household. So not, not just political, not just a, a citizen, a part of this, this kingdom, but you're also part of God's household. That, that connection goes even deeper. Verse 19, towards the end there, says not only are we citizens of the same kingdom, but we're also members of the same family. We are of God's household. Christians are God's children. God is our Father. Christ is the firstborn Son. And you and I are siblings in the Lord. And so when, we, when you hear us, and for those of you that maybe haven't been around the church, and we call one another brother and sister, for many of you, that actually might be a reality. But some of us, it's not. But as Christians, when we call each other brother and sister, it's far more than just some saying that we've tacked on. We're not just speaking figuratively. We truly are related, for God has made us a family. When we talk about the church being a family, it's not supposed to be some weird, quirky thing to manipulate you. It's the reality of what we have in Christ, in that we're not only part of his kingdom, but we're also part of his household. We're part of his family. When a child is born, he or she is born into an immediate and an extended family. Most of, these, most of the time, these family members are a blessing. Other times, they're a challenge or even a burden. But whatever the case, we do not get to decide whether we want to be in the family. Nor do we get to choose our family members, but we are obligated to live with and love our families simply because they are family. 
In a similar way, when we put our faith in Christ, we are born into an immediate and extended church family. Most of the time, these family members are a blessing. Other times, they are a challenge or even a burden. But whatever the case, we do not get to decide whether we want to be in the family, nor do we get to choose our family members. We are obligated to live with and love our spiritual family simply because they are family. So every Christian is a fellow citizen in God's kingdom and, every, every, and a fellow member in God's household, part of his family. Paul's third description of our community identity in Christ comes from a religious context. All believers are fellow parts of the same temple. Verses 20 through 22. In Christ, we are fellow parts of God's temple. A central theme throughout the Bible is the presence of God with his people. God was with Adam and Eve in the garden until their rejection of him led to their eviction from his presence. Later, God placed his presence in the tabernacle and in the temple, but once again, because of sin, God removed his presence from his people. Then God returned in the person of his son, who is Emmanuel, God with us, and now that Jesus has ascended to heaven. God places his presence in two specific places. First, he indwells individual believers, which is why 1 Corinthians 6.19 refers to our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit. Second, God places his presence among the community of believers, which is why 1 Corinthians 3.16 refers to the church as a temple of God. It is God's presence among the community of Christ that is Paul's focus here at the end of Ephesians 2. And Paul describes the foundation of this temple in verse 20, the, the building of this temple and the purpose of this temple. The, the cornerstone of this temple is, of course, Christ Jesus himself. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation is the authoritative teaching of Christ's apostles along with the prophets who were God's spokesmen as the New Testament was being written. God's word and the person of Jesus Christ is the solid foundation on which the church is built. The church then grows as individual Christians are added to the structure. This image here of this temple being made out of those who run to Christ. For every convert is a new stone in God's temple. God, the architect, designates a, a particular place for every person. And Christ, as the master builder, then situates, situates that person wherever God designates. And the Holy Spirit sanctifies the rough pieces to make them useful and presentable in God's holy temple. And in this way, all of us together are being formed into the holy temple of God to represent, serve, and glorify Him. And this noble work will continue until the final soul is saved, the final citizen is nationalized, the final child is adopted, and the final piece of the temple is placed. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon helps us envision this glorious process. He says, Before my astonished gaze this morning, there seems to me to rise up as from a great sea of confusion a wondrous building. I see the first stone sunk into the depths of that sea, dyed with blood. I see the top of it just emerging above lofty waves of strife and confusion. 
And now I see other stones built on that. All of them died with blood. The first apostles, all of them martyrs. I see stone rising upon stone as age succeeds age. At first, nearly all that foundation are laid in the bright red of martyrdom. But the structure rises. The stones are very different. They come from Asia, Africa, America, Europe, and are taken from among princes and among peasants. These stones are very diverse. Perhaps while they were here, they scarcely recognized that they belonged to the same building. But there they are. And for 1,860 years, or for now, some 2,022 years later, that building goes on and on and on building. Every stone being made ready. We know not how many more years that masterly edifice will take. But at the last, despite all the frowns of hell and all the powers of devils, that edifice will be completed. Not a single stone being lost, not one child of God being absent, and not one of those stones having suffered any injury nor been put out of its place. And the whole so fair, so matchless, such a display of power and wisdom and love that even the hateful ones whose hearts are hard as a stone against the Most High will be compelled to say, God must have sent Christ. They cannot restrain that confession when all the church shall be one as the Father is one with Christ. Oh, happy day. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Paul has taught us we were apart from Christ. He shows us what Christ did for us and who we now are because of Christ. Formerly, we were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, we who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Christ established peace between Jews and Gentiles by making them into one new people group. And then he reconciled them to God, having put a righteous end to God's righteous hostility. This is the twofold peace that we preach far and near. Because of Christ, we are now fellow citizens with the saints, fellow members in God's family, and fellow parts of God's holy temple. This is God's new community the church. So what difference should this reality make in our lives? How do we apply this practically? Well, first, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, would you run to him and know him as your heavenly Father today? Would you turn from your sin, accept Christ's free gift, which he paid for on your behalf on the cross By turning from sin, allowing Christ's sacrifice on our behalf to be enough, and living for him, we are citizens of his family. And the benefits of being in his family become ours. Man, if if you have questions about that and want to know more, I would encourage you, please talk to me afterwards. Find one of the other elders or deacons, or maybe that, that Christian friend that brought you. This is an important reality. That we all 
need the gospel of Jesus. Maybe you find yourselves, you've been attending a church, but you've never gotten involved. And then I just, I would encourage us, we're to be active members of the church. We're to be faithful members of a local church family. The, the church is God's intended context for the Christian life. It's not just us isolated all alone, just coming to this weird community event once in a while. It's God's greenhouse for Christian growth. It's the incubator, the nursery, the, the school in which infants in Christ grow and mature. So if you're not actively, consistently involved in a local church, then you can't walk with Christ as you ought. So I would encourage each of us to prayerfully seek where God wants us to belong and then commit ourselves to being a loving, serving, faithful member of that family. For here at Hope, we, we have an opportunity here at Hope later this month called a discovery class where you can learn more about Hope and what it might mean for you to become a member here. My encouragement isn't that Hope is the right place for you. My encouragement is be part of a local community, the church, because it's essential for how God helps us grow and to be a light in the community that we represent. But not only does every Christian need the church, the church needs every Christian. The church can't shine as brightly as we should unless every Christian lends his candle to the flame. The body can't be healthy unless all its parts are present and functioning healthily and harmoniously. Nations can't be strong if its citizens are disengaged or fighting among themselves. A family can't function fully if its family members are missing, inactive, or in conflict. Every Christian must embrace his or her identity as an integral part of God's new community, the church, if the church is to be what God intends it to be. We talk often about being the church. We have a variety of ways that we facilitate opportunities for all of us to engage here in the building as well as within our community. We do this because we must work together to be the church God wants us to be in this area. God has given us each things that we're passionate about to be used for his glory by making the hope of Jesus known in every context that we find ourselves in. And then finally, it's critical that Christ's community live in unity, peace and unity. Jesus died so that God's people would live in peace. He created the church to be a place where love is universal and unconditional, where prejudices are abandoned, divisions are healed, and conflicts resolved. And this is not found by ignoring the things that may divide us, but instead by realizing that Christ is the one that draws us together, and it's his word that shapes and molds us to be more like Jesus. And so our creator wants us to live the life he designed for us, and in order to do that, we need one another to encourage each of us and to help all of us along that path. We can follow Jesus together because Christ made one new community to be harmonious citizens in God's kingdom, loving members in God's family, and seamless parts of God's temple. And it is essential that all who are in Christ be united together in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the directness that you 
gave Paul to communicate these things. Lord, thank you for your church and the opportunity you give us to be part of it, to come together, to, to not only worship you, to be, but to be family members together. Would you equip us, would you strengthen us to be a, a light for you in the community that you have placed us? Would you help us to encourage those churches who desire to bring your gospel to others? Would you find us faithful in your work? Would we be all about your kingdom, where, where our citizenship lies, where our true family lives? And would you allow us to be a part of allowing others to see the hope of Jesus, to see others become part of that kingdom, be part of this family? Help us to do that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.